Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. History is being made in Pennsylvania today. For the first time, a governor is proposing a state budget for the next fiscal year before the spending plan for the current fiscal year is finished. To recap, Democratic first-year Governor Tom Wolf and the Republican majority legislature have been unable to reach agreement on a 2015-16 budget for more than seven months. The main holdup at this point is Wolf is looking for a tax increase to fund the $30.8 billion budget that includes an increase in education spending and to fix a structural deficit. Republicans won't agree to a tax increase. Today, Wolf states his case for a new budget. With the preview, we're joined by Dr. G. Terry Madonna, director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs, professor of public affairs and director of the Franklin and Marshall College poll. Dr. Madonna, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. All right. Associated Press, just want to give you the latest. And uh, uh, there's always previews going around the the day of uh, the budget address. Uh, The AP says that uh, Governor Wolf will ask for about $32 billion dollars. Uh, he'll need to break the Republican resistance to a billion-dollar-plus tax increase. Right. Wolf wants the money to close a long-term deficit and narrow funding gaps between wealthy and poor school districts. Meanwhile, billions of dollars for prisons, hospitals, and schools are in limbo, and lawmakers are frustrated by the seven-month-old battle. In his budget address to lawmakers, Wolf will tell lawmakers that they must fully fund schools and fix the deficit, or they will force schools to close and local taxes to increase. And by the way, we will be broadcasting... The the governor's budget address live here on WITF starting at about 1130. All right. So overall, how do you see this, Terry? You know, I think that's a good summary uh, from the AP. I mean, most of us have been saying, you know, who follow this closely that Governor Wolf is not going to give up on his agenda. He was elected. And well, I'm not getting into the right or wrong of it. I'm just saying the governor was elected by 10 percentage points on the premise that he would increase education spending. He talked about a shale tax. Uh, He also talked about other difficulties with the state budget, including the structural deficit. So the budget address that we're going to hear at 1130 is going to spend more. You know, he's going to propose spending more, and he's going to propose uh, taxes to to deal with it. The question is uh, what taxes, exactly what taxes, but it looks like from the AP story we're talking about over uh, $2 billion in new spending, which is going to require taxation at a variety of levels. It could be an income tax, could be lifting the exemptions from the sales tax, a combination of these things, a shale tax. None of this surprises me, Scott. If, in fact, you're elected on an agenda and you're in your second year and you didn't get, you didn't get your agenda, but you still feel that you're on the right path, uh, you know, he's not going to start with some de minimis budget, you know, less than he thinks he needs, and then he'll just have to thrash it out in the, with the legislature. I think that what many people are wondering across the state, though, is, as I said, this is history making. We've never crossed this line before where there wasn't a, a current budget in place while a governor is proposing a new one. And I asked you this question a few weeks ago, and maybe you have a different answer because we know a little <laughs> bit more. Maybe we don't. What happens here? This is, uh, you know, we're in un- yeah. uncharted waters. Yeah, well, it could continue. Remember, they did he, they did pass uh, a budget, the legislature. The governor uh, blue-lined uh, 20% of it. And as you mentioned, I think we're talking about a billion dollars in funding for prisons, about a billion dollars gets to be a serious problem. But... 
the state can probably, by the state I mean the folks who get receive money from the state, including schools and human services and counties, you know, they're going to limp along for several months and probably until early spring when they'll begin to feel the, the pinch again. And you'll be talking about stories, you know, schools threatening to close, layoffs of staff and programs that the state funds, not not direct state employees because they're protected by a Supreme Court decision in 2009, but those who get money who provide services, the providers, and this is going to be an ongoing story. I can't see the Pennsylvania House of Representatives in particular that wouldn't go along with a budget deal reached by Governor Wolf with Senate Republicans, known as the stopgap, this budget spends more in total than the stopgap, which was $30.8 billion. We're talking about something larger than that, about in the range of a $2 billion increase. And that's why I have a hard time getting my head around it, is how do these negotiations even yeah. begin when you haven't finished negotiations in the last right. one? All right, well, let's kind of bring everyone up to date, though. Uh, Dave Reed, who is uh, the majority leader, Republican in the House, is quoted this morning as saying the framework that the governor keeps talking about. It was before Thanksgiving, uh, the governor, the administration, House and Senate Republicans had a framework in place, as you mentioned, $30.8 billion. Well, House Rep- after the Senate agreed to that, uh, right. the House went back on it. And that's how we got to where we are now when they passed a budget of $30.3 billion. And the governor blue-lined, as you said, $7 billion of that. Uh, but anyway, that... You know, the governor keeps talking about this framework that they had in place that he was, you know, he would have signed that. Representative Reed, who very early on kind of had signed off on that, now is saying the framework is not in place. So we don't know why the governor keeps talking about it. Well, he keeps talking about it because he wants to increase education spending. I mean, he's already publicly called for another couple hundred million increase in basic education spending. And he's adding that to the framework. You follow that. He's adding that to the $365 million in new school district funding, which, as you accurately point out, the legislature did not buy into. The Senate did, but not the House. I think two things. Number one, I think the governor is sticking by his guns, and he's not surrendering what he believes is the right thing to do. That's point number one. Point number two He could be trying to woo the Senate Republicans again that tend to be a little more of what I call pragmatic conservatives. They made the deal in the beginning with the governor, known as the framework. Dave Reed, the majority leader, bought into it, but House Republicans, led by the Speaker of the House, Mike Terzai, did not. So I think the governor is going to stick by his guns in the message that we're going to hear at 1130 – He doesn't really care, I think, in a sense about getting a de minimis budget that doesn't allow him to get what he wants. And you're exactly right. We're going to be where we were. We're just going to continue the discussions that went nowhere. How about that? Yeah, and that's (laughs) what it sounds like, yeah. And and if you 
would like to weigh in on what you want to hear from Governor Wolf today, what you want to see, how you think this all will will be worked out or settled someday. It has to be. Give us a call. One eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF dot org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. G. Terry Madonna, political analyst with Franklin and Marshall College. Terry, you know, I say that someday it has to be working. It feels like it's so far away, though. Well, it is. I mean, they are. I mean, it's hard to imagine at this point how far, particularly the House Republicans are and, and, and the governor. They are on different planets when it comes to this. Look, the state legislature has gone through enormous uh, composition changes well more than half of the House is new within 10 years, something like 33, 34 new senators out of 50. Many of them elected, no tax hike pledge, cut the size of government down, uh, fewer regulations. They were elected on no tax hike pledges. They constitute a majority in the House. And so these folks are elected with a, with, from their constituents with an agenda. Governor Wolf was elected with a different constituency with a different agenda. You and I have talked about this before. And yet we've gone 15 months with stopgap budgets in the past. That's, this is not uncommon uh, in that sense. And we've had many budgets done by stopgaps back in the good old days, as they say, not in more recent years. Having said all of that, uh, they can continue to do stopgaps, you know, just keep funding the state. And, and this could continue for some time, and that's what it looks like is likely to happen unless there's some breakthrough. Now, Republicans, aside from the no tax increase, Val, uh, right. they very they made it, Senator Jay Corman made it uh, you know very clear very early on that uh, Republicans would not come to the table and negotiate unless well I shouldn't say not come to the table that's a bad way to put it but right. before they would compromise on anything the governor had to address public pensions that right. framework budget did address public pensions somewhat yes, it did, it did. Yes, it they, did. also liquor store privatization didn't privatize liquor stores but there was some give there where does where does all that stand now as we as we sit here today exactly well there's no uh no no deal on on the pensions you know they were talking about a hybrid for new state employees Uh, that's gone you know not uh having a 401k style plan work alongside with the defined benefit plan that's gone and as you point out uh, the House and the Senate did send Governor Wolf a liquor privatization plan, which he vetoed. Uh, so where we are with that is there's no deal on pensions at the moment, no deal on liquor privatization. Now, again, the framework did include uh, an extension of the retail operation, if you will, of the sale of alcohol. That was agreed to by the Senate Republicans and and Governor Wolf, and you could view that as a somewhat of a step towards privatization, I guess, you know, if you're going to do more private sales of alcohol out in, out in the uh, marketplace. But there's no deal on any of these things right now. And, but you're right, uh, Senator Corman, way back uh, uh, in uh, the early fall, if not earlier, was on record as saying, 
we will not give gov- – there will be no discussion of revenues. That's the way he put it, unless and until we get a deal on this huge pension deficit, variously discussed as somewhere between 50 and $60 billion for the state teachers' uh, pension system and for the state employees' pension system. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program for about the next 10 minutes or so is Dr. G. Terry Madonna, director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs, professor of public affairs and director of the Franklin and Marshall College poll. We haven't really given a preview of the governor's budget address today because there's so much that you have to, the background you have to provide to get to where we are uh, right now. And we'll talk a little bit more about previewing uh, the governor's proposal today. If you have a question or a comment, what do you want to see the governor say today? day 1-800-729-7532 send an email to smarttalk at witf.org you also can leave a question or comment on WITS Facebook page again that phone number is 1-800-729-7532 all right Terry let's uh, provide a little bit of a preview here the governor has already said that uh, he will ask again for a severance tax on natural right. gas drilling something that the Republicans shot down last year but it was reported yesterday that Republicans had their own hearing to talk about a possible shale extraction tax. So are Republicans maybe changing their minds on this? Yeah, I mean, I think some Republicans all along would have supported the shale tax, uh, many, many of, you know, particularly from the eastern part of the state in areas where the shale tax is not, uh, where, where shale is not actually produced. You know, you can, uh, most Pennsylvanians, because of where we live, have not seen a fracking well. You know, we have not seen them. They're along the northern tier of the state in relatively rural Pennsylvania, cut down through the Appalachian uh, Mountains below into Greene County, below Allegheny. I mean, uh, we don't live near it. We don't see it. And the shale tax tended to be popular, uh, more popular. I've polled on this in the southeastern part of our state than, you know, in those those regions where it's actually uh, produced. And so the shale tax has been popular all along with Pennsylvania voters. There have been some Republicans, I think, all along who would have supported it. Uh, the difficulty is whether you can get a Republican majority to do it. The Democrats would go along with it. Uh, but at this point, I don't think there's been a vote in either chamber on, on the shale tax. So we don't know for sure until we get a vote. The leadership in the House of Representatives has not been the Republican leadership has not been for a shale tax, but it's popular with with voters, both Democratic and Republican voters. See, I wonder, and looking at this from the governor's point of view, I wonder whether the time has passed, though, because right now uh, the price of natural gas is down. Uh, We're not producing as many jobs in Pennsylvania as we were, you know, just a couple years ago. Uh, And, you know, it probably will come back. But uh, an extraction gas is, or excuse me, extraction tax is not going to produce the kind of money that we originally had thought. And even some of those uh, estimates were were way too high. So, you know, I can see a legislator saying, you know, with legitimate reasons saying, hey, it's not a good time to put a tax on these people. Yeah, you could make an argument that two years ago, a 5% shale tax, and I've seen these numbers produced, you know, different organizations produce different numbers, seven, eight hundred million. I even saw a figure of a billion dollars 
perhaps you did too, on a 5% shale tax. But now, given the price of natural gas, would a 5% shale tax bring $400 million, $500 million or something less? You're exactly right. And so it wouldn't bring nearly as much uh, revenue, uh, but I but I think the governor is going to still recommend it. I mean, you know, he he's, I think he's going to stick to his guns. Here's something else. Let's just hypothetically say it's more than a hypothetical. We're in an election year, right? Even though most lawmakers are safe and they're going to win re-election, we already know that uh, from past performances. A shale tax is popular, and it does. It's not a broad-based tax, right? It's not broad-based. It doesn't hit everybody. Most people wouldn't know they're even that the tax even exists. So it's an easy tax in a sense. Now, I'll add the word words in a sense to vote for. You get my point. Mm-hmm. Then it would be if you're raising income or lifting exemptions from sales tax that could lead to a cable bill. If you get a cable bill and you're up 6%, you're going to see it, right, Scott? You're right. going to know it. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and, and there are things we're going to buy if we pay – Six percent more that we are going to know, but it's like lifting the cap, removing the cap on on the wholesale gasoline tax with the price of gasoline falling the way it has. I haven't heard any complaints at all about the fact that we're probably paying twenty twenty five cents more per gallon for gasoline because we've lifted the cap on gasoline for what reason to pay for a lot of money to go into roads and bridge construction. So I don't think the voters of the state would, by and large, even recognize it. Now, it may, I'm not talking about its impact on the industry itself. We can, that's another discussion. Speaking of road and bridge construction, Sam, who is a truck driver passing through the area, is calling in. Sam, you're on the air. Hi, my question for Mr. Madonna, uh, he stated that, uh, that the governor got elected by a 10% margin, and, and I would like to know, what percentage of that he thinks was actually a vote against Governor yeah. Corbett, not right. necessarily an endorsement of Governor Wolf's right. proposed tax and spend? Hey, yeah. hey, hey before, Sam, before you go, though, and uh, Terry answers your question, how are the roads out there? Uh, the roads are good. If you use some common sense, uh, I've been down <laughs> on 15. I'm up on 581 right now. Everything, PennDOT has everything in pretty good control, just... Use a little bit of common sense, and uh, you should be able to drive through quite safe. All right. Thank you very much for calling in. We always get uh, a lot of truck drivers who call in, Terry, but he yeah. brings up a good point, yeah. and one that Republicans right. use all the time, that it wasn't a mandate for Tom Wolf; It was an anti-Corbett vote. No, I, Yeah, and I hear that all the time, too. I mean, look, I, I don't think arguably you can say that let's just uh, guesstimate a percentage uh, 75, 80 percent of it was a rejection of Governor Corbett. I think we all agree there. However, having said that, Governor Wolf did win an election, and he did win it on his agenda. And again, in the polls that were done, what it, what was the single most important issue that that voters used when they went to the went to vote in 2014? It was what increase education spending. Education was the most important issue. And how do they want to pay for it? A shale tax. Look, I'm not advocating this. I'm just repeating right, what right. voters told all, all of a, all of the pollsters in the state when we looked at what they were telling us. And so, from that point of view, if you're Governor Wolf, you're elected by ten points, and you're what two things you want to do 
are popular with the voters, why wouldn't you want to do them? You yeah. know, I, I would be saying this if he were talking about uh, cuts in taxes, you, you understand, and a recommendation for reduced spending. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the voters said in 2014. We have an email here from Ann in Juniata County who says, just yesterday I received Senator Corman's February newsletter stating that the Senate has approved this bill to cut members of the legislature, which right. would save million dollar, uh, millions of dollars in taxpayer dollars. Based on Regis, recent legislative history, I have serious doubts that these folks will literally vote themselves out of business, much <laughs> less agree on uh, how to do it. But since we are discussing the budget, what are your thoughts on whether this would save money, uh, making funding for more beneficial programs uh, available? Well, this is not the first time, of course, that there have been proposals to reduce the size of the legislature. Uh, this has been an ongoing debate for 30 years or so in our state. It takes a constitutional amendment, two sessions of the legislature, not one. Uh, very difficult to do. The, uh, e- the emailer was exactly right. It's very hard to get people to you know, vote themselves out of a job, particularly in the House, where the proposals to get rid of 50, 53 num- members of the 203, that's a pretty substantial reduction. Uh, it's, it's one of those issues that voters don't often weigh in on. I mean, it's not something that – it's not top of mind. It's not something you sit around a kitchen table and talk about. Well, Things would get better if we had a smaller legislature. There's arguments about whether that would create more efficiency, whether the legislature would function better. The counterside to that, Scott, is that lawmakers say that would remove the closeness they have. It would remove their ability to communicate. Well, you can see where I'm heading with this, sure. communicate in today's world with it, the Internet and many ways to do it. For some rural lawmakers, it would expand their districts almost exponentially. Therefore, you know, making it, they argue, more difficult to represent them. I'm not overly optimistic that <laughs> will be the voters will get a chance to weigh on on this anytime soon, which they would do after the legislature would pass an amendment in two consecutive sessions. Right, we have a, another email here it says, uh, I heard uh, Terry opine last Friday at the Pennsylvania League of Municipalities that he wouldn't be surprised if Wolf didn't run for re-election, that this may impact his position on the budget battle in the coming weeks. What do you think about that, Terry? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think Governor Wolf, I mean, first of all, we don't know. Let's put that out there. No one knows for sure. And as you know, Scott, from doing this all the time, we love to speculate, right? We right. Love to, we, we wouldn't love to, have a show if we didn't speculate. Well, and we enjoy, yeah, I mean, everybody <laughs> enjoys it, yeah. But Governor Wolf said something in his first message to the legislature, his first budget message that I'm now beginning to take serious, <laughs> more seriously. He said, I'm going to be a different kind of governor. Remember that? Yes, I do. I remember all the commercials saying that, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, guess what? I think he's shown that he's going to be a different kind of governor. And I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't seek reelection. If he got his agenda through and he was convinced, I think, in his, from his point of view, that the structural deficit was taken care of, he might not run for reelection. I don't, he's not a career politician. There's no way to know for sure. I merely said it would not surprise me if he did not. Uh, Terry, one final question. Is there anything that you anticipate when we were talking about speculating that the governor will say today that will be a total shock, a total surprise, come out of left field? Yeah, I I think maybe, if anything, we could see a variety of of taxes, not just one. I don't think the 
I think the, the tactic might be, well, let's just not go for one tax. Let's spread them out across the board. That way it might be more palatable to the legislature. That's a possibility. I don't think we could rule out uh, Scott Lamar doing a program where he has to get into not one tax but four or five taxes, as, you know, different kinds of taxes. Remember, they looked at re- getting rid of some of the exemptions from the sales tax. They looked at a, a shale tax. They looked at I didn't say they agreed to them, but I'm saying, you know, over the course of the last uh, uh, year or so, they looked at what? They looked at the income tax, which has been the typical increase, which is a typical way that when the legislature and the governor have to face deficits, they've historically done to raise most of the money to deal with the fiscal situation of the state. Well, Terry, we will find out in uh, yes, just a, just a, a, a few hours. Dr. G. Terry Madonna, political analyst with Franklin and Marshall College, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. And you can hear Governor Wolf's budget address live here on WITF starting at 1130 later this morning, so be sure to tune in for that. It's also a big day politically in New Hampshire, as you're probably aware. The uh, New Hampshire primary, we have coverage tonight live starting at 8 p.m. Find out, uh, you know, basically on both both parties here between the Democrats and Republicans. A lot of a lot of attention to New Hampshire, maybe more so than usual to the New Hampshire primary this year. A protection from abuse order is a paper that is signed by a judge and tells the alleged abuser to stop the abuse or face serious legal consequences. It offers civil legal protection from domestic violence to both female and male victims. There are three types of PFAs, emergency, temporary, and final protection from abuse orders. An investigation and subsequent stories found that York County judges are issuing temporary PFAs far less often than the state average. This investigation was conducted in the stories by the York Daily Record. Joining us today are York Daily Record reporters Brandy Kessler and Ed Mann. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and thanks for uh, braving the snow and, 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 and coming in. So far, so good on the roads, right? Yeah, it was good. It took me about an hour. Not too bad. Okay. Well, or see, less than an hour. Less so, than an hour. So I always have to, you know, get a get an up-to-date uh, road report when I can. <laughs> from the trucker, from the Daily Record reporters. And if you once you hear uh, what uh, stories that uh, Brandy and Ed have to tell, if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF. Org. All right. I'm always curious, what prompted this story? <laughs> well, um, I'd say uh, maybe a little less than a year ago, um, there were a number of uh, domestic violence-related fatalities in York County. And um, it's something that the York Daily Record reported on when those things would happen. And um, our editor, Scott Blanchard, at some point in time said, hey, let's let's take a look and see if there's something more to this. And um, there was a thought to possibly try to revisit a project uh, that the York Daily Record did about 15 years ago called the Paper Shield. And um, in so doing so, we wanted to take a look at protection from abuse orders, and we started looking at state data that was already available and kind of happened upon the statistics, some of which we referenced in the article, um, about temporary protection from abuse orders and seeing those numbers that were different from York County and the rest of the state. All right, well, let's talk about those numbers. What did you find? 
Yeah, so the the big thing is the the pattern over like 2010 through 2014 was pretty consistent. Um, your county tended to deny about 44 percent of these temporary order requests, uh, while the state denied statewide they were denied about 12 percent of the time. And your county consistently ranked um, lowest in the state for approval rating. So they were you were more likely to get denied in your county than in pretty much any other county in the state by a judge. Now, how did you find this? You said that uh, you, you kind of raised eyebrows once you found these statistics. How did you find it? What? How did you go about investigating this? I, I mean, so the, the, those were there were state reports by the Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Courts. They put these reports out. Um, they just released this new interactive dashboard. Um, that's pretty cool for for looking at. But they have these annual reports that they look at, and so we we looked at all the data and for over those that five year period, mm-hmm. um, and then. And then as part of that, we went deeper and looked at the courthouse in your county because the, the statewide data tells you about counties. And then what we did, the next step was we looked at ever, or nearly all of the petitions for protection from abuse in 2014. And we looked at all the 2014 cases we could. I think we got them all. Um, and we broke it down by which judges in your county were more likely to deny temporary PFAs in that year. And we, and we found a wide range. And, Brandy, the big question is why? Why uh, does York County uh, have a much larger percentage of temporary PFAs being denied? Well, I think that when we set out to do this story, we weren't looking to come up with the answer ourselves. I think that we wanted to try and provide some insight into possibilities and it looks like you know if you read the story um, if you haven't please do so yes see we, have, it. And we have a link on our website witf.org the description of today's smart talk there's a link there yeah and um i think what what you see is that and what we saw is that there is this um you know there's a range in the judges um it looks like there are nine judges in york county who who ruled on these cases in 2014 and just to spe- just to clarify something we looked at 2014 because even though we're in 2016 right now at the time 2014 data was the most you know recently complete data that we could get our hands on so um you know those nine judges uh there's a, a big range there so we've got some judges um who who approve them about um uh, about 30 percent of the time and then we've got other judges at the other end uh, who approve them more than 80 percent of the time so i don't we, just to and also just to say this we did um we did reach out to each of the judges um, on more than one occasion, invite them to talk with us, you know, for us to be able to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, how they make decisions and just to talk with them about some of the cases. And we were able to speak with uh, just one of the judges, um, the current president judge of York County Court of Common Pleas, Joseph Adams. Um, so what did Judge Adams say? What was? How could he explain why uh, there was such th- such a disparity? And and as you just point out, not only a disparity uh, between your county and other counties across the state, but even a, a large—I mean, thirty to eighty percent amongst the nine judges. Yeah. So I guess I'll take the the statewide uh, issue first. Um, uh, Judge Adams. One of the things he said is they all are governed by the same rule. They all follow the law. He compared it, but he said judges are human and they're going to have some differences in how they interpret this standard, which is immediate and present danger of abuse. He compared it to a strike zone for an umpire. Um, and and specifically with some of the statewide things, he, he suggested, and 
that there some other counties might be screening out people before they even apply for a PFA, a temporary PFA or a PFA. Um, and that and the state doesn't have uh, information about what kind of screenings are in place. And when I say screening, that could be someone goes to apply for a temporary PFA and someone in the in the office there, not a judge, says you don't qualify, you should you shouldn't apply, or they could have to go through a domestic violence advocate. Um, so that was one thing he said was a possibility. We looked into the screenings as much as we could, and we also looked into sort of people in your. What we found was people in your county are less likely to even ask for a temporary PFA than in play, when you adjust for population than in other parts of the state. So if there is a screening, um, if screenings are turning away people in other parts of the state. Even with that, your county people are still less likely Why? to ask. Do we know that? We don't. I mean, we don't know that. That could be. That could be because. I mean, it could be because of a variety of reasons. Like you could think that maybe people in here are less likely to suffer from abuse. They are like less likely to think they're going to get a temporary PFA. That that's to, we just know that they're less likely to ask. We don't. There's. I'm sure there's more reasons than why they're less likely to ask. But but just the his position statewide was maybe there are screenings and maybe that's skewing the numbers. Um, but that doesn't really account that. But then when you get to the individual range among the judges, um, he suggested that maybe that's because types of cases are different. You know that it's it changes cases can vary week to week. So well, every case is different. But one thing I want to point out is that um, you know his analogy of different umpires have different strike zones. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is not meant to be a criticism of Judge Adams, but there's a big difference. If an umpire calls a high strike, people aren't going to die or get hurt, get, uh, you know, get beat up. If So, I mean, I, I just want to point that out. Yeah. That we're talking about something that's very serious. The judges have that much discretion with these things. Yeah, and 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 the way and talking to Judge Adams, I mean, he he's a former prosecutor who prosecuted domestic violence cases, prosecuted child abuse cases, which are related to these temporary PFAs. Um, and his point was, you know, we take these things very seriously, and that there are consequences on both sides. There are serious consequences for a defendant um, because that. So we focused on the temporary orders, and a temporary order, you go to the courthouse, you say you're in immediate and present danger. And then the judge decides whether to give you a temporary PFA. The defendant isn't there at that time, and the defendant could be ordered evicted from his or her home. Usually, the defendant is a man. Um, the defendant could be ordered to relinquish his guns. The defendant could be um, child custody could be affected in different ways. Um, so, one of the points that Judge Adams made is just that judges have to. Um, Think about all of these things. And, you have to look at both sides. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about a series of uh, stories in the York Daily Record with the reporters, York Daily Record reporters Brandy Kessler and Ed Mann, on temporary PFAs and York County judges issuing uh, PFAs at a rate that is uh, way off uh, the, the state average. They're denied about 12 uh, percent of the time in uh, Pennsylvania. In York County, it's about 44 uh, percent. Give us a call if you have a question, comment, maybe a story to tell, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. And something you just said that uh, kind of caught my attention, you said that uh, uh, at, at a hearing when the person who comes in for a temporary PFA, that the defendant is not there. So with the judge having to take into account the defendant, 
it almost sounds like the, the judge is almost an advocate for the defendant as well. Maybe that's a little too strong of a way to put it, but without the defendant being there, without an attorney being there for the defendant, it's kind of a one-on-one -on -one with the judge and uh, and and the, the alleged victim. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it might depend on. I don't know if judges would would see themselves that way. I think they would try to still see themselves as, or with the umpire analogy, as right. the, as the neutral side. Um, but they are in the position of. I mean, Judge Adams, he, he's his view is that it's a higher standard for a temporary uh, PFA versus a full PFA, and, and we can get into that whole process right. soon too. But it it is, I, I guess, just for for the judges, it's their responsibility to weigh both sides. But both sides aren't present, so. They have to assess credibility. They have to do a variety of things that you don't have the benefit of the defendant being there. Mm -hmm. But how much, and again, I, I know you're. this is just describing what you heard from Judge Adams. And as you said, that judges take this very seriously, as I'm sure they do. But how much do they take into account that victim, that alleged victim's story of, you know, I'm in danger, you know, he or she has threatened me. Uh, he or she has hit me. He, he or she said he's going to kill me. How does how much does that weigh in on a judge's decision whether to issue a temporary PFA? Well, again, um, you know, we weren't able to talk with all but one of the judges. So I can't tell you what goes on in these judges' minds. But as far as we can tell, it, it, there is, you know, the law and they rule in accordance with the law, immediate and present danger of abuse and whether it meets that standard. And one of the things um, that that we talk about a little bit in, in our article is the idea that immediate immediate is pretty subjective, right? So um, that's really, that's where the judge has a lot of discretion um, in determining whether it's immediate. Um, and, and whether the threat is immediate. Or the, the danger. Right. The danger mm -hmm. of abuse is immediate. So one of the things when we spoke with Judge Adams that he talked about is that, you know, if somebody comes in and they say a month ago this incident happened, and the judge could ask the question, well, why are you here now? And it could be, well, I didn't get here until now, or it could be, well, this person was incarcerated until now. And so that, you know, it's very fact specific. That's what Judge Adams told us. You know, each of these cases is very fact specific, and that's what judges look at to make a decision. So the way the information that they have in front of them really influences the decision that they make, you know, what, what they're given from that plaintiff. Um, you know, probably be a good idea to explain the procedure. What is the procedure for someone seeking a temporary PFA? Sure. And so the, the way it works um, is you go to the York County Judicial Center um, and you you ask for essentially people go there and they're, they're seeking this protection order. And I, we talk to people, Brandy talked to people. They don't necessarily know the difference between a temporary PFA versus a permanent PFA. They just want that piece of paper. They just want that, yeah. So they go to the courthouse and then typically the first step for getting a PFA is asking a judge for a temporary PFA. And in your county, you fill out the paperwork. It asks a bunch of questions like, when was the most recent incident of abuse? Has the defendant ever used firearms or threatened to use firearms, guns against you? Did you seek medical treatment? Um, once they finish this paperwork, so in your county, you can either be denied with a hearing, you can be denied without a hearing before a judge, or you can be granted with a hearing. You can't be granted without a hearing. You, if you're going to get a P temporary PFA, you've got to see a judge. Um, 
And so you, the judge decides that day whether to give you the temporary PFA or not. And that lasts about, you know, that lasts until the next a full hearing can happen where both sides can be present, which is about 10 business days um, until until that final hearing. And at that final hearing, you can all, both sides can have an attorney. They can, you know, cross-examine each other. It's, it's more like a traditional courtroom procedure that you're used You've to. said several times in your county. Is it different in your county than other counties? It, it is different. Um, so there was a Superior Court decision, State Superior Court decision in 2013. Uh, it was based off a Lancaster County case, I think. It was um, It said that essentially the, the court order, the court ruling said that you can't grant a temporary PFA without a hearing because you have to protect the defendant's rights. Um, judges in different parts of the state have interpreted that differently. Uh, in Lancaster County, for instance, judge there said they've interpreted that to mean everybody gets, you ask for a temporary hearing, you automatically have to have a, you ask for a temporary PFA, you automatically get a hearing. Um, in Bucks County, they just said that was easier to do, everybody gets a hearing. Uh, in your county, they've interpreted the, that ruling to mean that only if they're going to grant you a temporary PFA are you, do you have to get a hearing, that they can still deny you without a hearing. Um, so I don't know if that's clear. So in, in Lancaster County, you automatically get a hearing. In your county, you don't automatically get a hearing. So the courts in the individual counties kind of decide what's going to happen, uh, whether you get a hearing or not. What? How does this work that uh, you could be denied without getting a hearing? So the judge looks – there's a petition that you uh, fill out when you ask for a temporary PFA. And that that and the judge looks at that at that petition and decides whether or not to give you a PFA based a temporary PFA based only on that petition. But at the you know what you're okay. I just want to make some clear here yeah. because so you're saying uh, are you saying that there are occasions where people will be denied without a judge actually seeing their. I don't know if it's application or the, not. No, the judge will see their application. The judge won't see them in person. Okay. Sorry. Okay, so yeah. a judge always All, judge, will see the – okay. Yeah, the judge always sees the application. In your county, the judge does not always see the individual person applying. Okay. All right. So, Brandy, you know, I want to. I said right up front that there are three types. What's the difference between a temporary and an emergency? Well, we didn't we didn't take a real close look at emergency um, PFAs. Uh, my understanding is those are emergency orders. They're usually um, obtained by somebody after hours, and they usually last about twenty four hours. Um, but again, that's not something we took a real close look at. And then the temporary PFAs, uh, which we've talked about a great deal already. Um, that's when someone will go to the court houses, as Ed was describing earlier, and that usually lasts for about 10 days. And then the, the final order, um, if it's granted, could last for up to three years. Um, and it has similar ramifications, um, you know, similar um, benefits um, as as the temporary in that, you know, it, it provides that protection for the plaintiff for that period of time. And we've seen them for I think sometimes you'll see them for as little as, you know, three months, six months, 18 months, but up to three years. Um, what do they actually say? What do they prevent from happening? Well, a number of things. I mean, base, in very basic terms, it it tells the defendant you, you've got to not – well, let's, let's I mean, take a step backwards here. You um, – the judge can order, the judge has a lot of discretion in terms of what they order. They can order a no contact order, 
a full contact order, a limited contact order. Um, there might be other things they could order that we don't that we're, that we're not aware of. But so limited contact could be if you share custody of children and you want to have some kind of communication by text or by phone, talk about the kids, that kind of thing. A full contact order, which I think those were very rare. If you yeah. know, looking back, um, but that could just be like I still want to have contact with this person, but I don't want them to be abusive and. You know, those are very rare. And then the full contact, uh, um, the no contact orders would be no contact at all by, you know, directly or indirectly with this person for the extent of of the order. So once uh, someone comes in for a temporary PFA, how often do they go for uh, and maybe your county is the only one county you're familiar with. But how often do they go for a final PFA? Oh, uh, it's I, I what we can tell you is that like uh York County is closer to the the state average when it gets to final PFAs, um, and so a lot of cases end with people withdrawing um, their PFA application or not showing up for court. Um, I believe it's about like in York County and statewide, it's about a third of people who seek a PFA either get a a PFA granted by a judge or they get reach some sort of court order or stipulation with the other party. And that that's often like a, a consent agreement for a PFA, which is like the defendant agrees to the PFA without admitting any guilt. Um, and that happens about like a third of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brandy, you said earlier that one of the reasons that uh, you decided to pursue this story was that there were a number of domestic violence fatalities in your county. Were any of those fatalities, were any of the, the, the were, was it all women, by the way? Um, no, no. There, some of them were um, murder suicides or, okay. or double okay. murder suicides. Yeah. Were any of them had any of them sought PFAs? No. Um, to our knowledge, no. That that didn't appear to be the case. Um, and and so that's you know that's kind of why we looked further. Um, I mentioned earlier we were thinking of possibly possibly re, um, revisiting Paper Shield, but um, sort of wasn't the same climate in the county. But we recognized this. You know, this something was happening here with the temporary PFAs. That's why we chose a focus. But um, I will point out that, um, I, as I mentioned to you uh, earlier, Scott, that um, we got some feedback. We've gotten a lot of feedback on, right. on the article from a lot of people, but um, some of the feedback we've gotten actually is from uh, the York County coroner. And I don't know if that's Pam something Gang, yeah. Yeah, you wanted to talk about then. But um, uh, so even though there what weren't... Did, what did she have to say? Well, uh, essentially, even though there, there weren't um, fatalities that were linked with the PFA process in, in recently, um, that there is still an impact that she sees, you know, in in the denial rate of, of PFAs, temporary PFAs in York County um, that she sees as a coroner. She hears from family uh, members of those who've uh, died, you know, in domestic violence re- related fatalities. And uh, she sees that there is sort of, um, I don't know that's something we can quantify with data, you know, and that's really what we aim to do with this article. But, um, you know, that there is a feeling from family members that, you know, like, like advocates have told us that York County might be a difficult place to get a, a temporary PFA, and even though there there aren't there haven't been any deaths in your investigation, you did have stories though in in your article you had stories about uh, uh, people who were seeking a temporary PFA who were denied, and some of those stories I mean when you, you just you read it in the newspaper, read it on your website it says well why would a judge deny a case like tell some of those stories. 
Yeah, so, so there was one case, a woman, um, she wrote in her petition that her ex-husband forced his way into her home after a struggle. Um, she said he pushed her against the wall, spat in her face, and threatened to hurt her. Um, she said she had bruises and that there were prior physical altercations. Uh, she was denied a temporary PFA, uh, and we believe without it, and without a hearing, based on the information from the court. Um, and, and there are similar cases of, of people alleging specific physical abuse and uh, being denied. And, and there was another case where a woman, she asked for a temporary PFA. Um, she said the man had choked her, smacked her in the face, pulled her hair. She said she had a welt on her face from the incident. Uh, one of the judges, we have a transcript of that hearing, the judge indicated she was going to deny that, um, saying the person didn't qualify for the temporary PFA. But then during the hearing, the woman said, added near the end of it was that he had also threatened to burn her stuff um, if she didn't leave the house. And at that point, the judge granted the temporary PFA, saying that if he's threatening to burn your house, that qualifies. Um, so it's an interesting example, and it also sort of shows how these hearings can have a big impact. Um, that's something we heard from other counties, too. But So if, if people aren't getting these hearings at all, that is that seems like it would influence the decisions. See, this is one of those things, though, that, and I, I think you point this out in the article, that many times uh, the people who are seeking the temporary PFA, it's an emotional situation. Mm -hmm. Many times they're frightened, they're scared. They may not tell the full story, just what you described there. And it sounds as if uh, this was almost a secondary mention that, oh, yeah, he, by the way, he threatened to burn my stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course, I don't quite understand without having all the information in front of me. It's hard to say why, you know, he threatened her physically and that wasn't enough, but burning this stuff was. But uh, this seems like it's different than a lot of other criminal type cases because of the mo emotion involved, the time, the defendant not being there. Uh, witnesses not being called, that kind of thing. Oh yeah, and just and just because, so these are civil procedures too. So right. it's like anybody. So there's no. So just to, anybody can apply for a temporary PFA against anybody else, um, and you know criminal charges aren't necessary to, to get a temporary PFA. Um, and 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 so I mean, and then with with at these temporary PFA cases, I mean, this is something you'll hear from advocates is that people who are suffering from abuse and who have been going through abuse for years. They're so used to the abuse that they might not realize they might not be able to, to best tell their story to, to, in a clear way because they don't see the key things that are important. We only have a minute or so left, and there's a lot more to cover. Uh, and I encourage uh, you out there to uh, read the read the story. Go to witf.org or to the York Daily Records website to read the story. There's a link on our website, witf.org. Um, has this discouraged, in your reporting, in your investigation, has this discouraged victims from seeking a temporary uh, protection from abuse order because the county has a reputation of not handing it out as often. About 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's something that advocates have, have said is a, is a concern. That they've heard that from people. Um, what we found was there are people who just, they applied for temporary PFA, got denied, and then said, why bother going for the final PFA? That was something um, that we were able to quantify. And just real quick, so the York County, the approval rating increased in 2015 oh, based, 2015, on, that's right. based on preliminary data we got from the state. It went up to like 73% uh, uh, or so. And one of the big things is there was a cover sheet added, 
and it refers people to advocates. Very simple thing, but advocates say that makes a difference. The judge says he thinks that, Judge Adams said he thinks that probably made a difference too. And that is in your story. Yes. So Ed Mann and Brandy Kessler with the York Daily Record. Nice job. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Coming up tomorrow, we will hear from uh, Democratic Senate Minority Leader Jay Costa, Republican House Majority Leader Dave Reed on the budget.